because we've already said we've come to the end of our uh, consideration of this matter concerning faith. We've been going over this for the last 17, well, not last 17 weeks, but 17 different sessions. Um, and I was thinking about how I would uh, bring it all together at the end here. There's so much more could be said, but we have covered the main parts of what we need to know to be able to run that race. We were just saying that when the race is complete, and it will be complete one day, we will be finished. There will be an hour when it's done. Um, it is interesting that uh, the passage that we have chosen, or I've chosen, to kind of bring everything together starts from Hebrews chapter 12 in verse 1. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, or, and I will read uh, again those first two verses of that chapter. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. And the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that... You're with us by your Spirit here tonight to show us the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask you once again as we think through these things that you will work in our hearts that we might see him, understand him, and live by faith. And know what it is to truly live in this life. And to know what it is to anticipate the life which is still to come. And we come to give you thanks for that. So teach us by your spirit from your word tonight for your praise and glory. And we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We start with this verse. We have it in front of you. It brings up a picture, a picture of life. It's kind of an odd picture as far as the Christian life goes. Um, Typically in the, particularly when Paul writes it, he talks about the long haul as being a walk. We have to walk. In the spirit, we have to walk this way or that way. That's how he describes the ongoing Christian life. But the writer here picks up a different picture. He picks up the picture of the Christian life being like an Olympic race. That is an ancient Olympic race. Um, that's an important uh, thought. And we, uh, before we start into this, I want to, to look at a couple features of that picture. What does, it, what does it bring up to those who were listening to it the first time? First thing I want you to note is it's an intense race. All right, it's in there. It's an intense race. The Olympic race was something you only ran in your life one time. You got one shot at this. You made all kinds of preparation in order to have one chance to run. And when you got there, you had to run whatever course they set out in front of you. That's why that we run with endurance, the race that's set before us, because they, they had no choice in that. They just had to run it all however it was put out there. But it went on, and because it was so important, they ran with great intensity. And that's important to our understanding of the Christian life. There's nothing passive about it. There is nothing half-hearted about it. You're living a half-hearted Christian life. You're not living a Christian life at all because of just the nature of it. And then he says the second thing, or the second thing that comes up in the picture is this. It's a noble picture. It is a picture of something which is worth obtaining. If you won the Olympic race, 
you and your family was free from taxes for the rest of your life. A, a winner in the Olympic race, the winner, never had to work again in his life. He would become a, a, a member of the city council. He wouldn't pay taxes. And from that point on, he wears the robe and says, I am this particular, I won that race. Not very many people won it. Yeah. If you come in second, you go home. And so he puts this picture in front of us of a person who has a, a prize in front of them. And they are running with the intensity because that prize is something they have to get to. He then applies this with regards to the Lord. If you pick up the picture when he says this, he says that you're to look unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set in front of him endured the cross. If you've ever read through the story concerning Gethsemane, I'm sure you have. You know that that's an intense picture of the agony that he had to endure as he as he's taking on the sin of the world and facing the judgment of God. But the writer here says, although that was something which he abhorred and didn't want to go through, there was something which pulled him forward. And what pulled him forward is there was a prize to be won. And if you know Jesus Christ tonight, if you have come to a place where you have life in him, you're part of that prize. And it was worth the effort, it was worth the intensity, it was worth the pain if he could get to that goal. And he would get to that goal. And so the writer finishes by saying he won the race because after he ran that race, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's important in the book of Hebrews. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But that is a picture that when he completed that work on the cross, everything was in place so that I could know complete and eternal forgiveness and life in God. It was finished. He could sit down, race done, race done. Now, the writer picks up this particular picture. It's a picture of intensity. It is a picture of, of the nobility. But he also says this about it. That life, in order to live it, demands focus. Now here he kind of departs from the picture and gets into the reality of the life of faith. Because when it comes to the picture, uh, you have to be strong in order to win that race. You have to be determined. But he's not going to tell us that we have to be strong or determined to win the race. What he says is you have to be focused to win the race. You have to be focused. You're going to have to run this race fixing your attention on Jesus. That's the way he puts it. Now, we could stop and think about this passage right here, uh, and we could try to expound it. But, you know, the book of Hebrews is an interesting book. It's kind of different than the other epistles. At the end of the book, the writer says that this is a word of exhortation. In other words, he's, he's preaching. And it is interesting to note that when this would have been delivered to the church, you would have sat there if you were the church, and I would start in Hebrews chapter 1, God after he spoke long ago, and we read through the entire book. It's like a sermon. It would take a good part of an hour to get through, but we've all heard messages that went an hour. All right, And this point that he's making in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, is the application. It is where his message is going. When we're teaching people about presenting a message, that's one of the points we try to make to them. 
that when you're speaking, there should be something you're going to say, and you should know what that is. You should know precisely what you're trying to say and why you're trying to say it. Now, along the way in the book of Hebrews, there are many applications, but this is the application that the writer is moving towards because he is dealing with a group of people who have faced persecution in the past, they've faced difficulties in the past, but now are being challenged anew. It seems that after those early persecutions, they've had a period of peace, but now the, the heat's turning up again. And there are those in the congregation who say, yeah, let's just back off. Let's go back, and because they're Hebrews, go back to their Jewish roots. Give it up. All right? The writer says, no, we don't want to do that. And so the entire point of this message that he gives, the book of Hebrews, is to give you the information so you will have the capacity to keep on running in the race. It's a book which was real important to me at the very beginning of my Christian life. This was probably the first book that I taught to anybody. It was a Sunday school class, and I taught it for about a year and a half. I think we went through this book just kind of working our way through the thing. It was important to me at that time because when I was just converted, I had only been converted a couple years, I still had this deep fear because I had seen people start and then walk away. And in my lifetime, I've seen a lot of people walk away. I hate to say that, but it's true. More than I, I care to think about. And I asked myself the question at that time, how am I going to know? It's one thing for me to get up here and make great professions. See, I'm only 25 years old. And I had a deep fear at that particular time. And my fear was this. I'll get up here and I'll say all kinds of great things. And I'll get people all, all going this direction. And then I will trip and fall on my face and I will be out and I will dishonor God. How do I know I'm going to make it to the end? This book is all about making it to the end. It's about what I have to be, how I have to live in order to not only begin the race, but finish the race. So he puts this noble picture in front of us. And so... It's important. But that's what the writer is concerned about because some in that congregation are ready to go that route and he's making an all-out effort to pull them back, to, to direct their hearts back to Jesus. And so it's... Now, this is the application. All right? Hebrews chapter 1, 12, verse 1 and 2, the application. Wouldn't it be good for just a moment to survey what he said to make this application? All right, so we have to get this in order, because this, this kind of brings together, as we're going through here, it will also bring together a lot of what we have been talking about over these 17 previous sessions concerning what is the life of faith. So I want to go over them and just kind of get this is what the next thing is, the build-up. The build-up is what's the writer of Hebrews build-up to chapter 11 where he's going to start to talk about faith. What is it? How does he come to this conclusion? How does he move there? Let's start... In Hebrews chapter 1, and I'll just, I'm just going to tell you about it. In Hebrews chapter 1, he starts off with this, that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, and everybody in that congregation believed that God had spoken through the Old Testament. He says this, in these last days, and that last days is just the period before the kingdom is established. It's everything between when Jesus went to heaven and the Spirit of God came on the the disciples in the upper room, and the church of Jesus Christ was born. 
from that day until the day he returned. That's the last days. It's not just the last moments. But he says in these last days, God has done something. He spoke in his son. He spoke in Jesus Christ. And there's a great emphasis on the fact that this is the message of God, and it's the message of God to this generation. And that's important for us today because that's the message to us. Jesus Christ is the message. If you didn't get that out of our time together, then I'll get with you. Because that's the whole point. Jesus Christ is the message. And he says here, it's not when he says that he spoke to us in his son. He doesn't say he spoke to us through his son as he comes as a prophet. He says the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done is the message. That's, that's what God wants to say to us. And he's going to start in that chapter. It's very important. We'll pick it up later. I'm just going to make this point. The next thing that he says in the chapter is he's better than angels. And as he describes the fact that he's better than angels, which seems like, well, sure. As he goes to this, that the one who God spoke through is God himself. This is God who came and spoke. Now, that brings back to a point that we made way back at the very beginning of this session. We said, what is a definition for faith? All right, And we used Hanley Mole's definition. It is personal trust in a person. Personal trust in a person. How about that for eight? And we said that needs some explanation, but that's where we're going. Personal trust in a person. You see, that God spoke to this world through Jesus Christ, but he speaks to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? He doesn't give us a Bible, which is just lessons out here, he comes to speak. And that's why in the book, um, as it develops, there are five big warnings. I'm not going to go over all those warnings. I'm going to go over the first one, because if you get the first one, you don't need to worry about what comes less, next. Just make, make sure you do the first one. Then you will never get in the mess of the third or second, third, fourth, fifth. And here's what he says at the beginning. For this reason, because, it, because he is God, because the one who spoke is God himself who came all the way to this earth to show us what God was and to speak to us. We must pay close attention to what we've heard. That is the person. So the hearing here is not just a message we've heard, but the person we've seen. Right? We must pay much closer attention. That means direct our attention toward him. All right? Pay much closer attention. To what we've heard, lest we, and then this is, can be translated two different ways. Lest we drift from it, some translations have the drift from it, or you could translate it, and lest we let it, or lest we let it slip, right? And that let it slip comes from the fact that both of them have this idea that you have possession of something which is very important, precious, right? And because you don't treat it like it's as valuable as it is, and you're not paying attention, you lose it. It could be, and again, let it slip comes from the idea that in those days, um, if you were in an important family, you had a ring, which was the signet ring for the family. You could do business with this ring. 
It was very valuable. It's kind of like your credit card, but it was kind of more valuable than that. It represented who you were and where and you, having that ring was a very important thing. And you didn't want to treat it casually and let it slip. And again, I don't know how many. It's at least three different people that I know that young ladies who lost their wedding rings on their honeymoon in the ocean. Okay. New thing, you know, come in there and you don't, oh, wow, and you forget that it's there and um, it's not fitting exactly right and it's gone. If I remember correctly, it's three different people. That's, that's, but you see, there was no reason for that to happen except that what? They didn't pay attention. They just didn't pay attention. The other side of it could be that uh, the other pay attention is to lest it drift Lest it drift, all right? And the drift has to do with ships, particularly. That's where they would have it. Ships that could slide in the, in the currents. And you had to pay attention to where you were, because if you look the other way, the current could take you places you don't want to be, all right? If you remember again that, uh, well, I can go to another one. Let me just go to that one. I was told one time when, that there were pilots, you know, would you fly into a cloud formation, this was way back when I was a kid. And they said that fly into a cloud formation. You're going inside through clouds and you're trying to fly. You look at your instruments. And I do remember this part. And I don't. Because they said if you stop looking at your instruments, your life expectancy is 90 seconds. Average life expectancy of a pilot who is trying to keep his plane flat by looking at the clouds <laughs> is 90 seconds. I go, that's. It was a Moody film that said that, and they had dramatic um, recordings of pilots who panicked and crashed their planes. Right? Um, it's, it's a pretty serious matter. <laughs> Bill Cook, who was here at the very beginning of our time, was a a fighter pilot. And at the time, he, or he had been a fire, fighter pilot in the, in the Air Force, and he flew whatever the most sophisticated plane we had. It was the one that we were using at the time. I don't know what it was. But he tells a story of sitting at the radio station where they would communicate with the pilots. One day, two of his friends had gone up, and they, they were in the northern island of, of Japan, and they were doing... Uh, their things chasing each other around and, you know, pr- practicing and doing their dog fighting and all the rest of it. Now, those were the most sophisticated planes we had at the time, and they had all kinds of equipment to tell them where they were, but they weren't paying attention. And while they were up there, they got caught in a 200-mile-an-hour jet stream, taking them out over the North Pacific Ocean. And when they realized... Where they were, they also realized they did not have fuel to return to Japan. And those two men ditched and those two men died. There was no reason for that to happen. Right? There's no reason for that to happen. It happened not because they weren't equipped. It's they didn't pay attention. So that's the idea that the writer has here. God's spoken. He spoke personally. Now you're going to do something with that. He says, it's a precious thing to have him speak to you because of the tremendous possibility. And the book of Hebrews is full of tremendous possibility. But it's also seriously dangerous. Why? Because if you let it slip, you're going to hit the rocks. 
If you let it slip, you're going to die in the ocean. If you let it slip, you're going to lose something which is very precious to you. Again, you have to catch this in the book. Because this is the build-up to his let's run with endurance the race that's set before us. Okay, now, third thing we need to note about that is that not only is there that that message, but I'm going to jump way ahead here because we need to keep moving right along here. Um, in chapters 6, the middle of chapter 6, through the middle of chapter 10, the writer turns to the hope we have. He calls it the hope. We've said before that the foundation of the Christian life, if you're going to run this race, the foundation of that life is justification. Now, the writer here doesn't say it that way. Instead of using the picture of a foundation, he says this, he uses the picture of an anchor, of an anchor for your soul, something that you can hold on to in the storms, in the, in the drift of the current. You can hold on to this. And the thing you can hold on to are essentially the truths concerning justification. They are the, they are the things which come out when a person entrusts themselves to Jesus to save them. And he's talking about the, the salvation which, which delivers me from the guilt of sin here. He's talking about this, and he says three things about Jesus. Again, I don't want to take time too much on it, but it's very important to his picture he says, first of all, that Jesus is a better high priest, and because he's praying for you, he is able to save to the last degree. Save to the last degree. It's one of those interesting quirks of the book of Hebrews that save to the uttermost could mean to save you forever or save you completely. And because of the context, the best way to look at it is he's able to save you forever and save you completely. There's no point in your life there is nothing wrong with you when you come to Jesus that he can't sort out, straighten out, and make perfect. He will make us all exactly like his son in the end because he's able to do that because of his prayer. He is also able to do that as long as you're ever going to need salvation. As long as there is a need, he's able to do it because he's always intensely praying for us. How about that? That's a part that he says. That's part of the anchor. Because in the middle of the storm, you need to know that this isn't, doesn't depend on me. It depends on him. He goes on to say there is a perf- he is the mediator of a new covenant, and it's a perfect covenant, which doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. And then he moves on to the third part, which, is, which gets very close to the idea of the justification. In the longest argument of the book, he says this, and we've already been over it, that by one sacrifice, he has perfected for all time. Those that are being made holy. Those that are being purified. That's one of the great verses of the Bible. That by one sacrifice, he has already finished a relationship. He has put it in place so that that person can be close to God even in the process of being purified. That's wonderful. And it's important in the book because the basis of the life of faith is the justification that Jesus Christ has done for us. We are not living this life in order to get to God. We live this life because we already know God. And so the application, it is one of, it's the second big application, or the first in the order, but it's the other big application. It's this, let's draw near. Don't let anything keep you apart from God because everything has been done to keep you there. And if you're going to run the race, you're going to have to have that. Now those things he's covered, all right? That brings us to chapter 11. 
we're getting to that, you know, we've got to get to our application in chapter 12. And in chapter 11, he turns to the Old Testament characters and tells the people that, listen, they lived by faith. Don't desert the path of faith because they lived by faith. You want to go back there? Well, live by faith. Do that. All right? And we've already touched on a number of things from this book or from that chapter. But if you, if you put those lives together in typical Hebrew fa- fashion, they just put the story out and it goes round and round in the chapters, and the lessons have to be collected. All right? They're not in point, bullet point order. All right? It just doesn't happen that way. The Hebrews don't do it that way. They go round and round and round and round. And you pick it up over the whole scheme of things. Okay, in those chapters, what do we learn concerning the life of faith? All right? Well, the first one we have on the list there is faith is an active. The daily faith is an active faith. That was pointed out to me earlier, and I I think it's an important point to make. But although we can say that as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, we should walk in Him, there is a difference between those two activities or those two parts of our faith life. In essence, they're the same because we're going to do the same thing. We talked about all that. But there is a difference. When I come to Jesus Christ for salvation at the beginning, I entrust myself to Him. I say, save me. I repent of my sin, I just come and put my life into his hands. And that's nothing else for me to do. There is no work to do. There's no application. You just come and ask for the forgiveness. All right? In the life of faith that follows, there are activities. The faith has to be applied, that is expressed, in terms of actions. I think this is what Jesus was saying when he made the promise to be, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's the justifying side, if I, that's how, as I see it. It's the justifying side. If you come, I'll give you rest. But that's not the end of the program. All right? He then says this, take my yoke. That's different. You put a yoke on now. You just come for the first part. But now you take a yoke. Take my yoke on you. And then learn from me. Be trained by me. However you picture that. And what's going to happen? And you will find rest. Which is another picture of the life that God's called us to. You see, there, there is an activity. And that's what you have in the book of Hebrews. Now, we, if you remember way back to the beginning when we were talking about faith in the Bible, we noted this that the Old Testament does not use the word faith but a couple times in all that section. Now, when we talk about faith, faith is the noun which refers to the inward attitude of trust in God, that inward attitude of trust in God. The Old Testament expresses faith in terms of actions. You go through the book of Psalms, you find out faith doesn't occur there. Well, once I think it is, one time that it occurs. But here's what does come. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Um, Wait for the Lord. I waited for him. I trusted him. I committed my way to him. Take refuge in the Lord. You do something. You take an action. And that's one of the things that comes up in this, this long chapter, chapter 11. That the life of faith is an active life in which I hear what God says and then I respond to it. And that's it. by faith, Abraham does what? He leaves 
or the Chaldees. He left that because he heard the voice of God and then he took action on it. And that's why we did define faith at that point in this way, that faith listens to God and then builds its life on what it heard. Now, that's not a... That's not sort of a legalistic approach because the reason you do it, the reason you build is because you're trusting the person to hold up his end of the thing. I mean, if he said he'll give you rest, you come here and you do this. You take the yoke, okay, to learn the rest. So I'm going to take the yoke. But I'm counting on you as the Lord because it's, it's personal, right? This is personal. You're doing this because there is a person there who you believe will fulfill his part, and he will fulfill his part. Does that make sense? So Abraham leaves Ur. Why does he leave Ur? Because God said that if you come here, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless the world through you. All right? But you have to come. All right? So he did. He came. He responded in faith. He built his life. And building his life there is a, is a question of leaving one thing and going to another thing. We saw that, that the same way, in the same fashion, Moses is the other big life that's put in front of us in that chapter. Moses is living in Egypt. And it isn't said particularly, but it almost has to be the way it happened here. He had to have heard that covenant that God made with Abraham through his mother, who was an Israelite. That I will bless those that bless you and I'll curse those that curse you. Because it says that he took a look at his life while he was living there and he chose to be identified with the people of God. Right? Rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season, the Egyptians were oppressing the people of God. And the, the word of God was crystal clear. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And so he steps into this place, not to earn something, but just to get in the right spot with regards to God. He's on the wrong side. And so he builds his life. And in building his life, he tore it down. He gave up everything, goes out here. Why does he go out here? Because God spoke. And all the way through the book of Hebrews, this God spoke. And what are you going to do with it is very important but I want you to also note that it's not just that God spoke and gave a word out here that God comes to me and says, this is the way it is. When we read the word of God, I hope you got that early. When you read the word of God, you are reading what Jesus Christ is saying to you. If you refuse that, you are refusing a person, not just passing up a word. And that develops in the book of, of Hebrews. That To step aside is a terrible thing, but... If you respond, you are, you are stepping into line with the living God. What a wonderful thought. All right? So that's the first thing we note there, that they, their daily life, was this, this life of faith is an active life. By faith, they did all kinds of things, whether it was conquered kingdoms or accept imprisonment. But they do it by faith. Okay, next point. Those people in that chapter had an eternal perspective. We talked about this when we were thinking about hope, right? because it's particularly identified with the idea of hope. They have an eternal perspective. Okay, we live in time, and Christians live in time. That's, it's, we're here today. We're in time. We're, we're, we're bounded by time, all right? But he says this, the perspective of a person of faith goes out of time to eternity, and that has two ramifications. 
There's two sides to that. On the one side, they're moving out to the God who's there because he's not confined to time and space. He's, he comes into our world. He, he's everywhere present in our world, but he isn't confined to it. That these worlds were made by the word of God. That everything you see out there with something is just a, a work of his hands. And there is a God, if you would, who is bigger than all that. And the eternal perspective has to do with the eternal one, first of all. That there is a person out there. That there is a world which is way beyond the world of time and sense. That's one thing that they get. The second thing that they that has to do is that with is this fact. That my life isn't bounded by the years I spend on this earth. That life is an eternal program. There will be a time when anything that happens tonight will be so remote in the past, it will be completely forgotten. This is an important moment for us tonight. Important things are happening in your lives. Some of them are, are hard things. Some of them are great things. All kinds of interesting things to be happening but there is a long spell of eternity. And what happens tonight is really not terribly important in that big picture. And these men caught hold of it. That's again back to the matter concerning Moses. He caught hold of that. He had it made. If anybody had it made on the earth, that man had it made. Because he was royalty. He is in the place which... People treated him like a god. He was regarded, those guys were regarded as God. They had all of the honor. They got the education. They held the powerful positions. They, they have people below them or telling them or doing all things for him. Any pleasure that he wants, he can have. He said, what good is that if I lose it all at the end? Which is, of course, what the Lord says. What would profit a man? If he says, if you're time oriented, what would profit a man if he gains the whole world? If he has it all and he loses his soul in the end. These men were men who had perspective. They were men who understood that there is a longer program and you better think in terms of that long program by listening to God. And that takes you to the third point that in this chapter, what they decided to do was to seek to know God. Right? Because that's the essence. The reason Jesus came was not just so you could be saved from the guilt of your sin. That was a necessary step to an end. He died the just for the unjust to take us, bring us to God. To take us into relationship with God. How about that? I mean, let's face it, in the economy of the world, no, no, no criticisms here, we are, we are totally unimportant. If this whole group disappeared from the earth today, a few people in Greenville would say, hmm, I wonder where they went. For about two minutes. We don't control the history of the country. We don't have a great impact on the world. I doubt whether if we collected all our money, we could make an impact on anything. All right? We're totally unimportant. Right? But you have the chance. No matter who you are, you have a chance 
to be identified with and to personally know the one who created the entirety of the universe. And to not only know him in a funny feeling here, but to be with him for the rest of eternity in whatever he has planned out there. There are an awful, that's what Jesus said, there's many who are first who are going to be last. Many of the people who do control what's going on on this earth are going to die and be forgotten as far as importance goes. It's just a temporary thing. And so what does that eternal perspective of faith do? It seeks to know God. Now, you remember, if if you can, back at the time we were going over this verse, we said this, that says that um, without faith, it's impossible to please him. The the thing God really wants to get from you, what he's working in your life to grab, this is not something we can earn anything from God, but what he really wants to do, when he works within you both to will and to do of his own good pleasure, what is it that he's working He wants your trust. He is working in you to will to put your faith in your life into his hand in an act of faith. God loves faith. He loves to be trusted. And we are people who, by our nature, don't trust him. But he works both the will and to do to bring us to that place. So without faith, he says, it's impossible to please God. Is the one who is going to come to God has to have the faith? What does he have to have the faith? That he'll come, without um, faith is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. And remember what we said at that point? He must believe that he is who he says he is. Who he reveals himself to be. That's a particularly important book in the book of, or a particularly important point in the book of Hebrews because he started off with what? God, after he spoke long ago in the prophets, in his last days has spoken in his son. Jesus Christ is speaking to us. We must believe that he is and he's a rewarder of those who diligently, who give up the rest and seek him. That's what it does. And that's why, again, it builds its life on the foundation. Now, finishing this all up, because we have to get to our verse, right? (laughs) This is all the preparation to get to the verse. At the end of that chapter, the writer makes an important statement. And he says this, that the Old Testament saints, for all their determination and all of their faith, which was good, never achieved what God had for them completely. They didn't make it. Because he says, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And the important point of that is this, that The best you could have in the Old Testament, and there are people who walk with God, doesn't even begin to compare with the New Testament. Right? That's what Jesus said concerning concerning, uh, John the Baptist. He was the greatest of the Old Testament saints. He said so. Jesus said that. Of those born of women, no one is greater than John. Right? He says he who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. How can you say that? Is he saying something wrong with John the Baptist? No, when you enter the kingdom of God, something happens to you. When you're born again of the Spirit of God, when you become part of the church of Jesus Christ, the life of Christ enters into you. You now share life with Him. No Old Testament character ever really shared life with God. 
They didn't have that experience, but you have the potential for it. I have the potential for that. So the writer is that even though it was wonderful that these men walked by faith and they're pointing some, they're pointing to us, uh, pointing us a direction, but it says they didn't finish it. Without us, they can't be complete. And what do we have? We have the chance to not only listen to the word of God, we have the chance to fellowship with the person of God. All right? And that's where we get down to this thing. So we get to chapter 12, verse 1. All right? Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, the question of in what sense they're witnesses, because the word witness there can mean somebody who testifies or somebody who watches. And because it's a picture of an Olympic runner, most people go with the idea that these are people who are watching. But I don't think that fits here. Because it seems to me that what the writer of Hebrews has done is said, in essence, say, um, Abel, get up here and testify. Um, Enoch, tell him what you know. Was it worth it, Enoch? Was it worth it to walk with God in the middle of a really corrupt world? Was it worth it? He brings up all those characters. Abraham, did you get where you were supposed to go? Or was it right? You, 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 you were looking for a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Has it been fulfilled? Yes, it has. Okay, good. Moses, come up here. When you made that choice to leave everything in Egypt and go out there and be the, the head of a group of rebellious people, looking back, was it worth it? Was it worth it? So I think in this case, he said, we are in, we have all these people in the Old Testament saying to us, this is the right way. Do it. By all means, do it. We're in, we're in camps. Now, that's my own thought on it. Again, it's possible. But again, I really don't know. I, I kind of think if you got to heaven and saw the Lord, who would want to know? Who would want to look at this world again? I don't know whether they want to watch us or not. But I mean, why would they want to watch us? When they got the chance to be up there. But I don't know. I don't know. I'll stay out of that fight. All right. But then he says this, having been encompassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses. He says, let us also do something. Because he's implying that those people gave testimony to what they did. Let's us do it too. Because he wants these people to endure. And says, let's lay aside every weight encumbrance. He's going to the picture here. Because if you have a chance to win the Olympic Games and be free for the rest of your life, you're not going to put on a knapsack full of rocks to run. You're just not going to do it. If you're intense in running, you're going to do everything you can to lighten the load. Right? Now again, the writer does not tell us what he's talking about here. He does not apply this. So there are various different interpretations of all that. But he doesn't start off by saying, talking about sin. He talks about things that are in the way. That's the first thing that a runner does. He gets rid of everything that's in the way. You paid lots and lots and lots of money. You used to. I don't know again. I'm sure it's still lots and lots and lots of money to get shoes that virtually don't weigh anything. The lighter they get, the more expensive they are. So that your feet don't have to lift two ounces. They only lift one or whatever they get down to. I don't know what they lift. I mean, the things are really light. Why would you do that? Because the other guy is doing it. And I want to win the race. 
and I will do whatever it takes to win the race. All right? Lay aside every weight, everything that's in the way. And I think this is an important one because I don't think it, it's talking about things which are sinful here. It's talking about anything which slows you down in getting to God, which interferes with your relationship with God. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. And he says, then the sin which so easily entangles us. This is commonly referred to besetting sin. Um, in the light of the book of Hebrews, I think the sin is ignoring the word of God. That's the sin. Which we could call the sin of unbelief here. Uh, uh, because that, he doesn't say your sin, which easily besets you. He says, let's lay aside the sin, the sin, which so easily entangles us. What is that? That is that sin of not trusting God. Because then he goes to this. When we've done all that, when you put this aside, then how are we going to run? How are we going to run? We are going to run the race which is set before us, which is, again, we won't take any time on that, but... We don't have much choice in our life, do we? We choose a few things, but we don't choose much. Most of it just comes to us. The race is set before us. God puts it in front of us. We've got to keep running on that. All right, keep going, no matter which way it turns. And for these people, that had turned a rough way. And so he says, let's run with endurance. The race is set before us. And he says, now we get down to the, the main point here, looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. Now, that's the King James looking unto Jesus. All right. The New American Standard has fixing our eyes on Jesus. Um, it's translated in other places to look away to Jesus. And I think I like that translation the best. Because I think it's, it's helpful in this respect. Sometimes when we teach on the life of faith, it's as if, and again, I'm not trying to criticize Messages, I know they are there. I've actually given the message myself or told people this. Don't look at the waves. Look at Jesus. All right? And that can come across to people as, I'm going to pretend that there's nothing wrong here. Lord, you're, I'm just going to look at you. And, you know, I've got this sickness. I've got these financial problems. I've got problems in my family. I've got, but I'm not going to pretend. I'm going to pretend they're not there. All right? And I'm going to look to you. All right? Um, because it comes from the story of Peter. You know, Peter was in the boat. And Jesus walking across the water. And Peter says, Can, if it's you, then tell me to get up and walk out there. And he says, okay, come walk to me. And he starts to do it. And then he does say, it says in the passage, he looked at the waves and then he sunk. All right? Okay. Now, when he looked at those waves, he became afraid. No question about what happened. But it is important to finish out the story. Because then what does he do? He says, Lord, save me. And lo and behold, the Lord saved him. You see, he, got, he was in trouble. And then he looked. He was, there it was. And he looked away to Jesus. And when he looked away to Jesus, the Lord picked him up. And the Lord never rebukes him for looking at the waves. We, we, get, we, get, we do that. We give message after message. But it isn't that he looked at the waves. It's that he finished looking at the waves. That's where he started to sink, is when he let the waves be the object of his attention. We have real problems to face. Don't ever try to get people to a place where they're, they're trying to pretend that they don't have problems. 
or that those problems aren't serious. If you've got serious illness tonight, you've got serious illness tonight. If you've got financial problems, you have financial problems tonight. If you've got opposition in your life from people, you've got opposition in your life. And the point is not that we ignore those problems. The point is that having taken assessment of the real need in our life, we recognize the fact that there is one with me who's King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and I am going to stop my attention going this direction, and I am going to look away. I am going to look away, but the thought in this is I look away by taking the thing which is there and putting it into his hands. Right? I'm going to do that. Okay, here's the difficult situation. And the Lord says this to me, that it's all working together for good. I can sit there and fret on it, or I can look away to Jesus, because he's the one who said that. You see, when I take that action of saying, I believe your word, it's not just a matter of my being disciplined and and somehow keeping a law, and I'll just I'll hold on to this. It is the fact, Jesus, you said this to me. You told me that it was all going to work together for good, that if I put my life in your hands, it is in your hands, and you're going to take care of it. And this is what's going on, and I am trusting you to sort this out. And you could take that on any point. I mean, you could go to any point. When Jesus says to, to men that, you know, no man can serve two masters. Right? You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. That's the Lord speaking to us, right? What am I going to do about it? I've got financial issues here. What am I going to do? I'm going to look away to the Lord, right? Because I've got to make him the Lord. Because I can't do it. How do I know I can't do, serve two masters? Because he said so. But if I make him the master, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. Doesn't mean I don't. I stop worrying. I, mean, I stop trying to deal with the finances. But I put it into his hands. You see, I look away to him. And we can get this on every level. Whether it's dealing with again, we got on on the paper there. And I've got to finish up here. Well, in what areas? We've gone over a number of areas. That's what we've been over all winter. We've been thinking about the different areas we face. Do we face issues of fear? Right? That's the first place we went to because it's, it's probably the biggest problem in, in this life is, is the things which scare us. You have the thing that scares you in front of you. What do you do? Assess it and then look to the Lord. Right? You look away to Jesus. You just do. Right? This is what he's saying to do. If you're going to keep running the race, if you don't, you'll stop in the race. If you drift away from this and you start to trust in yourself and you start, you're going to get all tied up with all kinds of problems that are they're going to stop you in the run. See, the Lord was able to get these people through the persecution which was about to take place. He was able to do that. He is able to take you through whatever is in front of you. So the first did. When I look at that thing which could make me afraid, what are you going to do? Look away to the Lord. book has talked about this fact that sometimes in that walk you can begin to think you know i don't even know if i'm close to god or not i don't know whether i just don't know whether he would care about me anymore what are you going to do at a time like that because 
um, if you haven't ever felt that way, you haven't ever been tempted to think that somehow you are out of sync with God to the point where he doesn't care about you anymore. I don't know if you've been through the storms or not. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for you if you haven't. I'm just happy for you haven't, but I don't know too many people that haven't come to that place. What am I going to do? Well, that's what the writers said in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9, and 10. It took a long time to do it. To do what? Look away. Look away to one who promised, who said that I am able to save you as far as you need saved and as long as it'll take. Save you to the uttermost. Through and through, as Mr. Kelly used to put it, through and through and right through to the end. I'm able to do it. That your concern about the guilt that's within is not a concern here. I have made a sacrifice, and by that sacrifice, I have taken it all out. You see, this isn't a matter of just believing it. It is dealing with a person who is speaking to you and saying to you, I made the sacrifice on your behalf. Trust me. Trust me. He loves to be trusted. All right? We could go on down to that, that source of energy. In life, we need capacity to fulfill what's in front of us. And we already talked about that. Paul said that he had learned something in life. He had learned how he could face everything. How could he do it? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't know how many times I've had to trust the Lord with that. How am I going to do this? How am I going to accomplish what's right in front of me? How am I going to handle this situation? He has to do it. I have to look at the situation. Then what do I do? I have to look away. Lord, you have to meet me here. You have to give me capacity. And he will give capacity because he's faithful. All right, You look away to him. And, of course, we have down there at the end, and this where we were a couple weeks ago, this matter concerning hope. Because there's some things that I'm going to face in life that I can't change, and they're not going to get better. And what are you going to do about that? You've got an eternal perspective. You can't change them. They're not going to get better. But, as we said, it's all working together for good, and what? I have hope. Because no matter how bad it gets on this earth, I'm only here for a short period. And then there's a resurrection. Then there's an eternity with God. And I have all of this out ahead. I have the assurance that the things I can't change are okay. Because the one who loved me and gave himself for me has worked it all out. He's already ahead. And he is working in such a way that when it's all finished, how about this one? He'll receive me into his presence, and I love this part, with great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. All that's out ahead. No matter what happens on the in-between, it'll all be in his hands because he'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. And that's where it's going to end. It's a great life, the life of faith. It's a simple life. We've been over a lot of complicated things. Simple life. It's a life of personal trust in the person of Jesus Christ. And carrying it out, it is a life which listens to what he says, and that's in that word. And when it hears it, it does what? It holds on. And it builds. 
it builds, it rearranges its life around what he said. It's a life which will give you the potential to be fruitful and joyous in this time period and will give us the reality of eternal life. It's a wonderful thing. I wonder if you've entrusted your life into his hands. It's the best thing to do. No matter what it costs you as far as setting things aside in order to pursue it, it's always worth it. That's what all those guys said in the Old Testament. They said, it was worth it. It was worth it to stay in jail to be where I am now. It was worth it to give up Egypt to be where I am. Is it worth it to walk away from Ur, the Chaldees? It was worth it to, as Enoch had to do, live in the middle of a completely corrupt society and walk with God. It was worth it because of who he is. Trust him. Entrust your life into his hand. Okay, well, let's pray. Father, we come and give you thanks for your calling to us, for the fact that you sent the Lord to this earth to die for us so he could bring us into your presence. We thank you for the great potential of life on this earth, the potential to experience life here, the eternity you have in in mind ahead. We come and ask for every person in this room, for myself and for each one of us. Teach us that way of faith. Train us in it. Purify our lives. Enable us to walk with you. And we're coming to trust you for it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.